Hello, it's great to have you with us. Thanks very much for tuning in. We begin a new series here on Search for Truth today. The theme this time is the character of Christ. I'm sure you'll agree with me when I say that no other subject of study could be more beneficial and rewarding to our Christian lives. We're followers and imitators of Christ. He is our example and teacher. The Apostle Paul often urged us to be imitators of him as he was of Christ Jesus. So, for the next ten weeks, we'll enjoy a rich diet of teaching about Christ's lovely character. Today's study focuses on the love of Christ. Now, whilst on one level we study to glean information, we should also be aware of the personal challenge this knowledge brings to us. And here's Brian. Thanks, John. There's a lot said in 2 Corinthians about the character of Christ. As we might expect, there's a particular reason for that. Paul had planted the church at Corinth, but there were some now in that church who were setting themselves up in opposition to Paul's authority. We don't know for sure what Paul's opponents thought about Christ or what they were teaching about him, but it's a fair guess that they viewed Christ from a worldly point of view. There's a clue pointing to this in what Paul says in chapter 5. He says this, Therefore, from now on, we recognise no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. I favour the NIV's interpretive way of translating not knowing Christ, or anyone else for that matter, but Paul focuses it on Christ, not knowing Christ according to the flesh, as meaning not viewing them from a worldly point of view. For many back then, their expectation of the Messiah, or Christ, had originally been to picture him as a heroic warrior who'd come to liberate the Jews from the Roman military and political power. Going back to those at Corinth who were in the church there, and who were setting themselves up against Paul's authority, their way of throwing doubt on Paul's credibility as a minister of Christ seemed to include criticising him for being weak, for being physically unimpressive, and for being a poor public speaker, as they saw it. It's this that shows clearly that they were judging things from a worldly point of view, and it seems fair to suspect this was how they also viewed Christ even now. Paul understands that their criticism of him is really a misconception of Christ, and he deals with it in that way. He says, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognise no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer." We might debate as to whether Paul is talking about Christ's love for us or our love for Christ, 
when he says the love of Christ controls or compels us. Considering the larger view of the letter, I'm going to suggest to you that it was the former. That is, it was Christ's love for us that should compel us. We can see a lot about the character of Christ elsewhere in this letter, and I think it's in part for the reason that we mentioned. It would fit that this too should be about Christ's character, about his love. Paul is here defending his ministry as being under the authority of the Christ who died and was raised. In other words, the guiding example for his ministry is the passion of Christ. And equally clearly, the example that guides the ministry of his opponents is something else. These people who were setting themselves up in opposition against Paul were creating a deep division in the Corinthian church. Whose side would people take? That of the false apostles or the side of Paul? Who had the more credible authority? How could this issue be settled? Well, both Paul and his opponents claimed to speak for Christ. Certainly Paul does, as we read right at the end of the letter. But I think we may assume the other party also claimed to speak for Christ. Part of the purpose of 2 Corinthians is to settle the debate as to which of those claims is valid. As we've said, part of the criticism of Paul's ministry, or at least a challenge arising from it, appears to have been a request for a proof that Christ was speaking in him. We find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 3. And we're led to believe that the Corinthians understand that the minister in whom Christ speaks is the one to whom they should pay attention. That leads us to expect that Paul would explain and defend his ministry in terms of demonstrating how it echoes Christ's own ministry. At every turn, Paul's presentation of Christ in 2 Corinthians involves paradox. In other words, it presents God's thinking, God's acting, and even God's being as the opposite of worldly human thinking. For example, in the first chapter, between verses 3 and 11, suffering is shown to lead to comfort. Paul describes God as the one who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. No help is more welcome than from someone else who's been through what we're going through. As an example of that, I came across the story of 15-year-old Douglas Morer from Missouri. He'd been feeling unwell for several days. His temperature was ranging between 103 and 105 degrees, and he was suffering from severe flu-like symptoms. Finally, his mother took him to the hospital where he was diagnosed as having leukaemia. The doctors told him that for the next three years, he would have to undergo chemotherapy. They told Douglas he would go bald and that his body would most likely bloat. Upon learning this, he went into a deep depression. His aunt contacted a florist shop to send Douglas an arrangement of flowers. She told the shop assistant that it was for her teenage nephew who had leukaemia. When the flowers arrived at the hospital, they were beautiful. Douglas read the card from his aunt. Then he saw a second card, and it said, Douglas, 
I took your order. I work at the flower shop. I had leukemia when I was seven years old. I'm 22 years old now. My heart goes out to you. Sincerely, Laura Bradley. Douglas was in a hospital room filled with millions of dollars of the most sophisticated medical equipment. He was being treated by expert doctors and nurses with medical training totaling in the hundreds of years. But it was a sales assistant in a flower shop who, by taking the time to care, gave Douglas hope and the will to carry on. That's what God wants us to do for others, using the experience of suffering that we've had. But we were saying how Paul's presentation of Christ in 2 Corinthians involves paradox. Let's find some more examples of that. In chapter 4 and in chapter 5, death is shown to lead to life. In chapter 8, poverty leads to riches. In chapter 10, captivity leads to conquest. In chapter 12, weakness leads to power. It may seem as if God's kingdom is the upside-down kingdom, but in reality, it's the world that's got things the wrong way up. All of this, all that we read about in 2 Corinthians, is actually the language of the incarnation, life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's sharing Christ's suffering that allows us to comfort one another. It's knowing Christ and his death that brings us life. It's becoming sharers of Christ's poverty that gives us the enjoyment of spiritual riches. Paul emphasises these points to make the point that our experience should be the same as Christ's, at least in these terms. These same paradoxes should be the authentic experience of anyone who lives and speaks as Christ's ambassador. That's why Paul talks of his imitation of the example of Christ's character. And that's why we think the term the love of Christ means Christ's love for us. Paul's opponents called him weak, and rather than disagreeing with them, Paul says, in effect, it's precisely in such weakness that true power, the power of God, becomes effective in my ministry. The inspiration for this conviction comes from the cross of Christ. He speaks of Christ being crucified in weakness, but now living through the power of God. And he turns the tables on his critics at that point and says, test yourselves. That's in chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourselves, he said. It's the love of Christ that compels us to live for him who died for us, that is, for Christ. When we live for Christ like that, power in authentic Christian ministry comes through weakness. And Paul offers this as the evidence that Christ is speaking through him. He'd passed the test. Now he turns the challenge back on those who are challenging his authority. They should test themselves. We began by saying that throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions Christ's character. This study has tried to explore at least part of the reason for that. Our further studies will aim to trace the various mentions in this same letter, not only of his love, but his meekness, his gentleness and his obedience. A final thought on love. The little boy sailing out at sea with his dad asked the question, Daddy, how big is God's love? 
Do you see a way over there? his dad asked and pointed to the horizon. The little boy nodded. His dad directed him to all four compass points in turn. It's as big as that, he said, allowing the vast expanse of the ocean to make its impression on the young boy's mind. After a few reflectful moments, the boy replied, Daddy, that's a really wonderful thing because we're right in the middle of it. How true. In summary, the love of Christ, Christ's own love, compels or constrains us. It controls us to live for him who died for us. May we do so. Once again, I remind you that there's a free book to go with this series of talks. A copy can be yours if you write in by post or by email. So if you'd like a copy of the book, just ask for The Character of Christ. You can do this by email, as I said, or by post, and here's the address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon SN4 8DY UK Search for Truth PO Box 748 Ringwood Victoria 3134 Australia Search for Truth PO Box 70115 Chilomani Blantyre Malawi Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.com Dot info. So, it's been a great pleasure to share this programme with you today and we thank you for your company here on Search for Truth. So many thanks for making the effort to join us and I look forward to you joining me again next week if you're able to when we'll be studying, God willing, the obedient character of Christ. So, until then, it's bye for now. Very best wishes from our Bible teacher, Brian, our producer, David, our singers, and me, John. So, see you again soon, and in the meantime, may God richly bless you. Since I know